Okay. Well, as promised, I think, what, two weeks ago, I was, I am going to break this up. I'm going to look at verses 20 and 21 in a separate lesson, which is actually already done because I've been kind of working ahead a little bit, but, uh, so I have to kind of gear back two weeks into what I've been doing and kind of refresh my memory on what I did two weeks ago. But uh, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, Paul is going to close this chapter uh, with a prayer, um, and then he ends it with a doxology. So we're going to look at the prayer today, the doxology, or the word of praise uh, next week. And then it's just going to lead into, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, uh, Paul's practical section that he'll begin in chapter 4. So after laying out this mystery uh, that he's been the, uh, appointed as the minister of how then shall we live? What should our lives look like? Uh, we should never uh, think that just because we're saved by grace through faith alone that that, that that means that we can live any old way we want. No, as Luther would say, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It is a faith that uh, flowers and produces uh, good works, necessarily so, as we would teach. Uh, so uh, when we get to chapter 4 and beyond, we're going to look at the pattern of life that should guide the believer, the one who has been made into this holy temple unto the Lord, the one who has been made one body, Jew and Gentile, um, in, uh, into the glory of God. So we'll look at that in the weeks to come, but... Um, let me now read verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3, as Paul writes. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So just by way of uh, recap, uh, last time that we looked at Ephesians, which was two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 13, where Paul um, reveals the mystery, the mystery that has been hidden, the mystery to which he has been uh, given the task of proclaiming. And that mystery is in verse 6, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of God's promises in Christ through the gospel. So the gospel that he proclaims is a mystery of Gentile inclusion is a mystery of Jew and Gentile being brought together, being made heirs, being made into the same body, the body of Christ. We know that that's a metaphor that is often for the church, and that church is not just a Jewish church. That church is not just a Gentile church. It is a church that is made up of both into one body, that both Jew and Gentile are now partakers of his promise, and that uh, that they are both fellow heirs. So that is the, the mystery that Paul has revealed. That is the mystery that um, he has been uh, given this ministry to proclaim. And uh, it is really, it's just a summation of what he has said in chapters 1 and 2. 
So he sums it up as calling it the mystery. And now what Paul is going to do in verses 14 through 19 is he's going to pray uh, that this mystery now will take a hold in our hearts, that it will firm us up in our faith, and that it will strengthen us and fill us with the fullness of God. So in a sense, he's, he's beginning or he's continuing the prayer that he actually began in verse 1 of chapter 3, right? You see there, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And he pauses. It's like, you have heard that I am the minister to the Gentiles, and this is the ministry that has been given to me. So now he's going to pick this up again in chapter, 14, or chapter 3, verse 14, as you see again. For this reason, I. It's the same way he begins chapter 3, verse 1. But now he's going to go into this prayer where he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to continue the prayer that he began in verse 1. And the prayer is this, that the mystery of the gospel will strengthen us and fill our hearts. That's essentially what this prayer is. He wants this mystery of the gospel to so penetrate us, to so permeate us, that it then fills us, and that it fills us with the fullness of God that we will then go forth and live in light of this. So that's why I titled it Filled with the Fullness of God. Uh, and we're going to look at this in one, two, three, what, four parts there. So um, first we see in verses 14 and 15, Paul bowing to the Father, bowing to the Father. So he's going to get ready to pray. Uh, verses 14 and 15 are sort of the preamble to this prayer. As he says here again, after expounding um, the glorious mystery of the gospel, uh, detailed in chapters 1 and 2, how we are chosen before the foundation of the world uh, by the Father to be in Christ Jesus, to be united with Christ Jesus, how, that, how the Son has redeemed us by his blood, forgiven us our sins, how the Holy Spirit then takes us and sets his seal upon us and uh, ensures the inheritance that we will receive. Uh, he is the down payment of that inheritance. How... Uh, we were, uh, who were once dead in our sins and trespasses, have been made alive together with Christ. We are raised up together. We are seated together uh, in the heavenly places. How we are saved by grace through faith. How we are then uh, built uh, into one new man. How we are living stones being uh, built into a temple unto the Lord on the foundation of Christ and the prophets. How that middle wall of division and separation has been broken down because Christ fulfilled the law. All of these things, for this reason, for those reasons. And then how he, Paul, has been graciously set apart to be the steward of this mystery. It is not his gospel in the sense of that it, he made it. It is his gospel in the sense that he has been given the stewardship to proclaim this gospel. It is his, uh, he is the caretaker. He is the steward set apart to uh, divvy out the treasures of God to his people uh, as a good and faithful steward, as a house manager in God's house. He has chosen to be a steward of this mystery. Then Paul uses this reason uh, to motivate his prayers. So he bows his knees. For this reason, I bow my knees. Now, the normal posture for prayer for a Jew would be to stand. You know, uh, but if you wanted to show particular reverence and worship to the Lord, then you would bow your knees. You see this uh, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 after the, um, the temple. Solomon has 
uh, built the temple, and the temple is completed, and then uh, Solomon offers his great prayer, and at the end of the prayer, and so it was when Solomon had finished uh, praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. So the entire prayer of 1 Kings 8 is offered in a further posture of reverence and humility and worship as he is bows before the Lord to pray that prayer. And then when he's done, he stands up. Uh, you see the same thing um, later on in 1 Kings 19. This would be Elijah, uh, as Elijah is um, praying before the Lord. This is after uh, the prophets of Baal. Um, and, and here the Lord speaks to Elijah, and he says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed. Again, they have not, there are, there's a faithful remnant in Israel who have not praised and revered and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of of Baal and, and so on and so forth, who have not kissed the mouth. You see this again in Psalm 95, verse 6. I often read this as a call to worship. Um, in Psalm 95, uh, it begins by uh, announcing a, a, a call to God's people to come into his presence to worship. And in verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So this is a, a Paul here is just borrowing from the Old Testament this idea of, yes, you could pray standing up with your hands uplifted, but if you want to show proper reverence and awe and respect in worship, you, uh, you go down to your knees and you uh, show this sign of humility before the Lord. And here we see he prays to the God the Father, the Father of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, I've heard it said, and I, I think this is a good thing, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this idea is captured in Westminster Larger Catechism, if you want the reference, question 178. Yeah, so you, if you think Heidelberg has a lot of questions, Westminster Larger Catechism has 196 questions. So. In question 178, it reads, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his Spirit. And then it says, with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Again, Paul is offering this prayer to God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of Christ, in the power of the Spirit. Then you have an interesting turn of phrase here in verse 15 where he says, of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So you got the whole family of heaven. Now, let me tell you what this is not teaching, okay, because some may confuse this. This is not teaching universalism, okay? This is not teaching that God is the Father of all people. Uh, this is not uh, a universal fatherhood of God as uh, the Protestant liberals would have taught. Uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, we are not teaching that God is the father of all. He is the creator of all. He is the father of those who are united to his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. So when Paul says here, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named, that word family 
is in the Greek, it's derived from the word for father. The word for father in the Greek is patros, and here you have patria. It speaks of a lineage, a nation, a tribe, a clan, a family. So again, you've got this idea of adoption, right? God has adopted us into his family because of our faith in Christ, and then through that, then he could say, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So in other words, what he's saying here is all believers, living and dead, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter whether you're living or dead, we are his, we are part of that family. Again, united to Christ by faith. So part of the family. And who, in whom we are named. To name something is, in a sense, to uh, claim ownership over it. Right? Uh, if we bear the name, then we are, in a sense, owned by God. Think of how Peter is named by Christ, right? Christ renames him. He says, you're no longer Simon. You will be known as Peter, right? Or think of uh, Revelation. When we looked at Revelation in chapter 2, verse 17, or chapter 3, verse 12, where there we are given a name. We are given a name by God, another name. He names us. And, and think also how that ties into uh, what John will say, or Jesus will say in John's gospel, how Jesus knows us by name, right? So uh, we are named by the Father, and we are part of this family through adoption. So Paul here is about to pray on behalf of the Ephesians, and of course, uh, us as well. Um, uh, those whom the Father has chosen, whom the Son has redeemed, and who this, whom the Spirit has sealed. So now we're going to look at verses 16, the first half of 17. Like, why these weird divisions? Well, you know, in, in the Greek, there was no verse divisions, okay? Uh, in the original, there's no chapter and verse uh, mark, mark, uh, demarcation. So um, what you see, there's a structure in verses 16 through 19 where Paul's going to pray, and he's got three purpose clauses, okay? So he's going to pray for three specific purposes here. And the first purpose is that we would be strengthened uh, by his spirit. The first clause, the first prayer request, however you want to call it, is a prayer for spiritual strengthening in verses 16 and the first half of 17. So that, I'm praying to the Father for the reason or so that or in order that he, the Father, would grant you, the Ephesians and us by extension, according to the riches of his glory, and here's the request, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is the request, the first one. That we've been strengthened by the spirit, strengthened with might through the spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And that all of this is according to the riches of his glory. So that we be strengthened, to, be, to, be, to make strong, but it's not a strength in our bodies, right? This is not a health and wealth thing, right? You know, if you pray and if you have enough faith, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and you'll never get sick and so on and so forth. No, it's a strength in the inner man, in the soul, in the, in the spirit of man. It's an inner strengthening, and it's a strength with power. So he wants you to be strong with strength. It's a, again, think of this is a very Hebrew way of speaking, right? Uh, where you use a noun and a verb that are the same 
kind of word, be strengthened with strength. That word there for to be strengthened with strength is dunamis, to have strength, power, ability, that the Spirit will give you the ability to do things, that the Spirit will strengthen you, that from His strength He will give you strength. We have no strength in and of ourselves, right? We are weak, we are uh, frail. Paul calls us uh, jars of clay in 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about how I am weak, and I, I, you know, but, I, but Christ strengthens me right, through his grace. So we are weak. The Spirit gives us strength. We are strengthened in the inner man with strength, with power, with might. Again, an inner strengthening, inner strengthening uh, from the Holy Spirit to our uh, spirits. A couple of verses that play this out. Psalm 138.3. Psalm 138.3. It's a psalm of David where he says, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods. I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. And then verse 3. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. So here David is crying out to the Lord, and the Lord answers him by strengthening him in the inner man. It's the same thing you see in that great verse at the end of Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, oftentimes you see this on, on a like a stitching or wall print or something, or you'd be renewed with the strength of eagle's wings and so on. But here in Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31, he, the Lord, gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I kind of alluded to this earlier in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where Paul prays for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and the Spirit, well, Christ says to him, my grace is sufficient to you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. St. Paul then goes on and says, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities. I want to boast in the fact that I'm weak. Why? Because when I'm weak, that's when Christ is made strong in me. Right? So it's his inner strength. And it's a gift of grace. Right? That he would grant you. That, that word grant, to give, to bestow, uh, to give, to grant. So the Father, the Father out of his grace, Paul prays that the Father will grant you this strength, that he will grant you to be strengthened in your inner man. Again, how? According to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. So that God will grant this out of his wealth, out of his infinite abundance of glory there. Uh, Again, we should not think that God is stingy, that God is miserly, that God doesn't want to strengthen us, that we have to like badger him for this strength. No, God willingly, graciously wants to pour his strength out into you. And he does so because he's got this infinite reservoir of glory and strength to bestow upon you. 
that for the asking, right? What does James say? If any of you lacks wisdom, pray to God who gives wisdom liberally. Just pours it out. It's a gift of grace. We need this because we need to be strengthened in our inner man. Why? Because we battle with the flesh. Yes, believers are indwelt by the Spirit, right? That's, we, we teach that. It's, so when he's praying this, this to be filled with strength in the inner man, it's not saying that, that you be indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit already dwells in us. But now he's praying for the Spirit to then, who dwells in us to strengthen us in this inner man. Think of what we're, we'll see in a, in a couple of chapters in chapter 5 where he says, be filled with the Spirit. Right? You already have the Spirit dwelling in you. Now be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So let that Spirit well up. Let the power and strength of the Spirit well up in you. And again, we need this. Why? Because we often war with the flesh. Right? I, there's plenty of verses that talk about this, that we war with the flesh. But again, Paul prays that God will grant this out of or according to the riches of of his glory. And as we're strengthened by the Spirit uh, in the inner man, Christ then will dwell. He will settle, right? As, as we grow in the strength in the inner man, Christ will feel more and more at home in us through faith, right? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know, again, you know, to tie in what we're going to see later on this morning, faith is the warp and woof of the Christian life, right? It is a life that is begun in faith, it is a life that is lived in faith, and it is a life that uh, is completed in faith. So faith is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life, that Christ will be at home in your hearts, that he will dwell in your hearts through faith. As our faith is strengthened, as our inner man is strengthened, Christ will feel more and more at home in our spirits. Uh, Again, you know, if you think about just chapter 2, verse 21, we are a temple unto the Lord. The temple is the image of where God dwells, where Christ dwells in our hearts. Uh, John 14, 23, where John, uh, Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room that, um, you know, that the Father and, and I will come and dwell within you, that we will sup with you. Many other verses could talk about this. We look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Here we see Paul talking again here. Um, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So as the Spirit strengthens us, Christ dwells in us because it is the Spirit of Christ that is dwelling in us. Again, Galatians 2.20, it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
Uh, Ephesians 1.27, the mysteries that Christ dwells in you. So all these things, that Christ will be at home in your spirits through faith, that he may dwell in your hearts through faith as we are strengthened in the inner man. The second request uh, begins with the last half of verse 17 and goes through the verse, first half of verse 19. So the second prayer request is that we may be able to know and comprehend the love of Christ. So starting in the second half of verse 17, that you, so there's that other purpose clause, in order that, so that, because of, uh, for the reason that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So there's a lot of words there, but what Paul is essentially saying is, I want you to be able to comprehend the love of Christ. So the first request, be strengthened in your inner man by the Spirit. Now I want you to know the love of Christ, which is a love that passes knowledge, <laughs> which is a love that he describes as width, length, height, and depth. In other words, it, it, it expands in every direction. It is, it is a, it a love that we will never fully comprehend, but a love that we can at least begin to learn some things about. Yeah. Yeah, four-dimensional love in a three-dimensional world. It cannot fit it, right? It just, it just, right, yeah, it expands out. It overflows. But again, uh, this is first accomplished. This request is first accomplished as we are being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, those words there, the first word is to take root. Uh, the second word is to make stable, to establish. It's the word that we get the foundation of. So think about this. If you're a plant, you need to be rooted in the ground in order to grow. If you're a building, you need a firm foundation in order to be built upon, right? In other words, rooted in ground and suggests the ability to grow. And in order to, be, in order to grow, you have to be firmly planted. You have to have a firm foundation, rooted and grounded in what? In love. In love. So as we practice love, as we grow in our love for one another, as we grow in our obedience and practice of the great commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves, as we are enabled and empowered to be able to have full strength to comprehend this love, as we show love to one another, we are then growing in our knowledge of God's love, of Christ's love for us. Right? What does Jesus say again to the disciples in the upper room? The world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As you practice love with one another, then the world will know you are my disciples. And it also shows that my love fills your hearts. And again, we'll never fully comprehend it because it's a love that surpasses knowledge. It, it is beyond knowledge. It is but it is within our ability to at least glimpse its fullness, its height, its width, its length, its depth. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, calls love the greatest, right? He says these three things are great, faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest because love is what will uh, go on into the final stage. It will go on into the eternal state. You won't need faith 
in the new heavens and the new earth because your faith will have been realized. You don't need hope because your hope is there. But love will continue because we will be dwelling with one another. We'll be dwelling in the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Love will still be there. Love is what is shared between the Trinity. The the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a sort of a love relationship within the Godhead. And when we express brotherly love, we get an idea, we get a small glimpse, if you will, of the love that Christ has for us. And, And Paul wants us to know this love. Paul wants us to have some ability to comprehend with all the saints this love that passes uh, knowledge. Isaiah 55, 9. You don't need to turn there because I'm, I'm just going to quote it. But Isaiah 55, 9 talks about um, uh, you know, the things that surpass, you know, how the things of God are beyond and above our own ways. His ways are not our ways. John 15, 13. There, Jesus tells his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that, he, that one should lay his life down for, uh, for his friends. And that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus showed his disciples the greatest love by laying his own life down for his friends, for his disciples. He laid his life down. That's the extent and depth of his love is, is just demonstrated in that one act. And again, think of love as not a romantic feeling. Love is a is, is an action that goes forth. It is one that meets the needs of another at your own expense. And in this case, Jesus laid his life down in order to redeem his sheep, in order to save his people. Uh, the ladies have been going through Matthew. And if you remember what is told to uh, Joseph, uh, is that you will name the son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. How? By going to the cross and showing forth the highest example of love by laying his life down for uh, his friends. Keep going back to Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul there says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I live now in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me? How? And gave himself for me. Jesus Christ loved us, gave himself for us, and now the life that we have, which is an indwelt life by faith, is one in which we then show forth that love that he has shown to us. see the depths of that love in Philippians 2. Where Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers to be united, to show humility, to show deference to one another. Um, you know, in the opening verses of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's, the, that's how we should serve one another, is not uh, in order to get ahead, but is in order to put the needs of another before myself. Uh, it is not low self-esteem. It's 
No self-esteem. Okay? You don't esteem yourself too highly. You don't, you're, not, you're, not, you're not sitting there in the corner saying, oh, I'm garbage, I'm trash, because that's just kind of a way to draw attention to yourself in a negative sense. No, he's like, look, I don't even really think about myself. I think about the needs of others. That's what Paul is trying to get through to them. If you have any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, be like-minded. Having the same love and being of one accord, be united. Look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. And then he's going to then he gives the example. What's the prime example of this? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who, if anyone could be filled with self-esteem, it would be him. He was at the right hand of God the Father, right? He was in the form of God, yet he did not consider it something to be clung to. He did not consider it as something that I had to guard jealously. I gave that up in order to come into this world, in order to take on the form of a servant, in order to serve you, in order to go and be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he did that out of love, out of humility, in order then that we should live lives that are, in a sense, like that. Many other passages I could look to. But comprehending the love of Christ, so being filled with strength through the Spirit, comprehending the love of Christ, and then finally, the final uh, prayer request, which is just the last half of verse 19 that you may be filled. So again, that that there is a so that in order that. It's a purpose clause. So I, I pray that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, this is another Hebrew way of saying, you know, so strengthened with strength, filled with fullness. So I want you to be filled with fullness. And in a sense, it's kind of a a, a, a concluding request that sort of incorporates all of the others. I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. I want you to, to just overflow with God's fullness. This is not uh, suggesting that we are deified. Uh, this is not suggesting that somehow we become gods. The finite cannot contain the infinite. But this, this word for fullness is one that suggests Filled to the brim, overflowing. You are so filled, there's, you cannot fill, put anything else in there. It is completely filled, right? You know, uh, I, always, I, I always make this joke with my wife, you know, with the trash can, right? The trash can looks like it's full. So she's like, we need to take that out. It's like, no, you don't. You're here. Just, you know, you put your foot down, you compress it. Now we've got more room in the trash can. It's not fullness yet. We could put more in there, right? Or, you know, you're trying to pack. Uh, I remember when my, my daughter and her husband were getting ready to move down to Florida, and they were using our old um, SUV, and they had everything packed in the back there, and it looked like, a, a, you know, a master-level Tetris game with everything filled. I mean, there, you could not fill anything in there anymore. So, and that's kind of like the idea here is like filled with the fullness that there's no room for anything else. Again, this is a concluding request that I believe encompasses the other two. As we're strengthened by the Spirit, as we comprehend the love of Christ, then we are filled to the fullness of God the Father. 
And it is to be so completely filled that the things of this world have no room. Right? Because remember, he's going to now go from this eventually into the practical application. Right? So as he's concluding the, if you want to call it the doctrinal section, the theological section, he's like, if you're filled with the fullness of God, if you comprehend the love of Christ, if, you are filled with, if you're strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit, then you have no room for the world, the flesh, and the devil, because you're filled with the fullness of God. And you're going to outflow from that. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. The one who looks at his life or her life and sees I have a drastic need for righteousness. I have a drastic need for, for, uh, for holiness. And I know in my own self I have none of that. When you recognize that spiritual destitution, you will be filled. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness that you don't have, you will be filled with the fullness of God. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 16 This is John, the author, speaking. After he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness of him and said, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And then John, the gospel author, says, and of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. We have all received of his fullness by grace through grace, from grace to grace. We have received of his fullness. These are other, I mean, there's other verses I could look to, but what Paul is saying here is he wants you to be filled with the fullness of God as you contemplate and comprehend the love of Christ as you're Strengthen the inner man by the strength of the Spirit gives you. And again, as I say, think of how this applies to our sanctification. Because our sanctification, our growing in the faith, is not accomplished by us working that out, doing more and trying harder. It is through the Spirit strengthening us, it's through comprehending the love of Christ, and it is through the fullness of God that we then outflow in works of love and obedience, and holiness. If we try to do it in our own strength, we end up producing less sanctified works. We end up producing works of the flesh. We have to do this. It is through faith. It is done in the power of the Spirit as he strengthens us, as we focus on the love of Christ, and as we are filled with the fullness of God. Now, so I bring this to a close because, again, that clock is slow. Um, we're not done with chapter 3. 
right, we've got two more verses to go, the, the, the doxology, and we'll look at that, Lord willing, uh, next week. But Paul here has a closing doxology as the mere contemplation of what he is praying for then moves him into words of praise. And we'll look at that next time. Um, but just think about this prayer as an example of how we can pray in our own lives, right? I'm not saying it's not wrong to, you know, pray for, you know, that the Lord will heal this or that the Lord will work in that way or to any kind of supplication. But before we start bringing supplications to the Lord, think of, you know, the, the, the typical acronyms that you hear for prayer like ACTS, A-C-T-S. The S stands for supplication. That comes at the end after you uh, give, you know, you bring words of adoration, words of confession, words of thankfulness. Um, and, and think of how Paul prays here. He's praying for them, the Ephesians, to be filled with the fullness of God. Okay? You know, I mean, that surpasses anything you could think of. Oh, Lord, please help me in this. Or, Lord, I mean, again, not that those are wrong prayers to pray. But are we praying to be filled with the fullness of God? Are we praying to be strengthened in our inner man through the strength that the Spirit provides? Are we praying to comprehend more and more the love of Christ that is, surpasses knowledge? As Paul prays for the Ephesians, as I said, this gives us an example of how to pray for one another. And again, it's also a setup for the practical application that will follow in chapters 4 through 6. Holiness and sanctification flow out of a life that is filled with all the fullness of God. As you are filled, and as you begin to spill over, that then comes out in love and good works. Now the good news, of course, is that as we contemplate and meditate more and more on the mystery of the gospel, we begin to see all that God has done for us. It's kind of hard to have room for the world if you're contemplating what God has done for you, what Christ has done for you. If you focus your mind on what Christ has done for you, how he gave up everything to come into this world and to die for you, to take his, our sins upon his shoulders, to pay the atonement for our sins, so that then he can give us the Holy Spirit. And as you contemplate on this, it's like, wow, Christ has done so much for me. How can I then go and live any other way? Right? How can I live in such a way? It's not to say you're not going to struggle with that. That's why you come back to this and you say, fill me with the fullness. Help me to see your love more and more. Help me to have, be strengthened in the inner man by the strength of the Spirit. So as we contemplate on this, it's good news. This is the gospel applied to real life is what we're seeing here. And as we're strengthening the inner man, as we comprehend the unsearchable love of Christ, as we're filled with the fullness of God, then we spill over, as I keep saying, into love and good works. And I'll stop here. Uh, Lord willing, next week, we will look at the doxology in verses 20 and 21. Unless the Lord returns, that would be better. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, let's pray and get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we 
are thankful that you have done so much for us. Lord, help us to, in our prayer lives, to pray for things like this, not only in ourselves, but in our loved ones, in one another. Pray, Lord, for those who are, that we know who are lost, that they will come to know this. And Lord, as we contemplate more and more, as we look at what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, how you have given us so much, may that then crowd out the desires of the world and the flesh and the devil. As your word says, as we resist the devil, we we do so by turning to you. So Lord, again, fill us with the strength of your spirit. Help us to comprehend the love of Christ and and let us be filled with the fullness that you provide. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.